I get to continue our, uh, our series uh, for Advent. Uh, our series has been Economic Justice and the Bible's two Christmas stories. We have been, if you've been following along with us, this will be a little bit review as I kick us off. We've been jumping off of the work of very justice-focused biblical scholars who point out that uh, for example, before Jesus ever existed, there were individuals in the Mediterranean world of that time who were referred to with titles like Son of God, Redeemer of the World, Savior from Sin. There were individuals where that title was applied, and those individuals were the Caesars, the Roman emperors. That's kind of a, a, an unexpected thing for those of us who are growing up in 20th, 21st century, and the only ever time we ever heard the phrase used, Savior from sin, or Lord God, or Redeemer of the world, we only ever hear that referred to as Jesus. But in those days, when those titles are being applied to this guy, Jesus, this random Jewish peasant, that's actually quite a statement politically, economically. It's a statement about power, because there was somebody out there in the Mediterranean world of Jesus who was supposedly already those things. Why is this Jewish peasant being talked about that way? Who, what about the Roman emperor? That is the, the bite of, uh, of those phrases. So, um, for example, a, a New Testament scholar, John Dominic Crossan, says, if you don't understand Caesar, you can't understand Christ. That's Kind of like, okay, great. Well, if, we, if, if we're here in a church hoping to learn something from Jesus Christ, perhaps we should uh, understand something about Caesar beforehand. Politics and economics are kind of inescapably behind the story of Jesus. Inescapably behind, in particular, the stories of Jesus' birth, where we first have this Jesus coming onto the scene and big, grand names and titles being applied to this baby. And that's what we remember every Advent and Christmas. We return to those stories. We have a confrontation between two different programs for peace or programs for bringing people together. And so we had a little slide last week that we worked on to kind of understand the confrontation that's going on in the Christmas story. Caesar's program versus Jesus's program. We have Caesar who is all about peace through victory or peace through violence. If you can remember back to your Western Civ history courses, if you grew up in America, they taught you about Pax Romana, this, this uh, Latin phrase that refers to the Roman peace. The Roman peace, oh, the Roman emperor, they, they hold all of these people of the Mediterranean world together. And how do they do it? They do it peacefully. But it's not really peace because what it is is actually anytime there's dissent from any group of people, they send their army and quickly squash out the dissent. And it says, no, no, see, it's peaceful. There's, nobody is unhappy in the Roman Empire. The Pax Romana, the peaceful Rome, were also peaceful, but it's not peaceful at all. That is on one side. On the other side, we have Jesus' program, which is peace through justice, not violence in disguise, but peace through actual moral integrity. People are not supposed to be, like, if, if somebody has dissent, there's a reason. We must listen to them. We must give them a seat at the table, not squash them with armies. We have on one side cross-building. We have on the other side cross-bearing. We have top-down uh, uh, rule on one side, and we have bottom-up influence on the other side. So last week, we started to ask this question, what does this mean for us today? 
that there's a confrontation behind the Christmas stories, or there's a confrontation behind the, the gospel of Jesus between Caesar and Jesus. We don't have a Caesar today. We don't have an emperor today in 21st century America. So does this mean anything to us? I think the question that we must ask is, what are the broken programs for supposed peace that God might be confronting today? What are those broken things? We don't have a Caesar. We don't have an emperor. But we have broken programs that claim to hold people together but really are just violence in disguise. Of course, we have got to point to modern fascist and totalitarian regimes. Those have to be confronted. But we also considered last week another interpretation that I brought to us. And this is not the violence of armies. This is a violence of a different type. What we talked about last week is the violence, if we can expand the definition of that word, of the top-down economy as a broken program for holding people together. It claims peace, but is it really peace? Does anyone remember, um, if you joined us last week, what the uh, statistic was of the ratio of CEO salaries to average worker salaries in America in 2021? Anyone remember what it was? Yeah. Yeah, 398 to 1. Let's put it up on the screen here. Take a look at what happens eventually. Sir, sir about 1990, between 95 and 2000 to average salaries of CEOs of the biggest companies in America to the salaries of their average workers. What an astronomical change. What is going on, right? The rich are kept... What is the top-down economy that I'm talking about? The rich are kept rich. The working class and the planet are exploited in the process. And the middle class are stuck on the hamster wheel to keep everything turning. With the empty promise, if you put your trust in the wealthy, then their wealth will trickle down to you too. It's quite a shocking image, right? That graph. So seeing this as a broken program for peace that Jesus is confronting puts us in the legacy of people like, for example, Dr. King. Dr. King had the vision of the beloved community which had no room for exploitation of people and planet, whose famous I Have a Dream speech was held together by an economic metaphor that America had defaulted on a promissory note to black Americans. And uh, when he delivers the speech, we have marched to Washington to demand payment on that promissory note that is not being delivered on. You know, Dr. King really became an enemy of the state, someone targeted by the FBI, targeted by extremist white supremacists when he started critiquing capitalism. That's when he really became an enemy of the state. When he started to say, oh, oh, you think racism is like this alone thing? No, no, it's intertwined with the way America works. It's intertwined with capitalism. That's when Dr. King suddenly had a lot of enemies. So... Economic justice, that's part of our theme that we're talking about this Advent. I'll get it back to Christmas, I promise. The other side of our theme is the, two, the Bible's two Christmas stories. You know, traditionally, most of us would be familiar with a Christmas story, right? The nativity scene. Yeah, we see it everywhere right now, right? Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus in the manger and the shepherds and the animals and the wise men and the star that the wise men followed all there together, right? This nice little... Uh, collection. That tradition is awesome. I love it. It is so wonderful in so many ways. But there are actually two stories 
that, uh, that make up the Bible's uh, tellings of Jesus' birth. And they're not necessarily stories that cohere with each other. There is Luke's story from the Gospel of Luke. That one focuses on Mary, and it has the shepherds in the manger. That's where we get those parts. And then there's a different story. There's Matthew's story in the Gospel of Matthew, which focuses on Joseph and has the star and the wise man and Herod. That's where we get those parts of the story. And so we were kind of remembering that there's two different stories here. There's Matthew's story and there's Luke's story, and they don't totally cohere with each other. This year, we're leaning into uh, scholarship about the Bible that encourages us to engage them separately. And so last week, we looked at Luke, and this week, we're looking at Matthew. And we're seeing them not necessarily as woven together with each other, but as, as overtures to their respective gospels. So Luke is telling a story about Jesus, and his Christmas story sets that whole story up. If you get the Christmas story, you will get what he is saying in his entire gospel. And likewise, Matthew is doing the same. He's setting up the gospel that he is about to tell about Jesus, and his Christmas story starts us off on the right foot. We've had this, this, these analogies to help us kind of distinguish between the two. We talked about how Luke, last week, is like a protest song. It's like, we shall overcome, a protest song that you sing to kind of steal yourself for action and keep you in the game. And today, we're going to talk about Matthew. Matthew, our analogy for that, is that Matthew is like a subversive drama. Think Hamilton. That's why Hamilton is our image for this week. So, I love Hamilton. Anyone else love Hamilton? Yeah? Yeah, right. Okay. Who, you guys are liars. Hamilton is like the most popular thing ever. Everybody loves Hamilton, right? Yeah, no, not everybody. You don't have to love Hamilton. But I do think Hamilton had a, a handle on our culture for a period of time for a reason, because it is this really powerful, subversive drama. Hamilton is, so Lin-Manuel Miranda, the, the writer of Hamilton, creatively repurposes the American Revolution story, a familiar frame of reference, if you, you are growing up in America. He, he creatively repurposes that story to sneak in a big claim about immigration, about the soul of America. It's a subversive drama. Puts it on Broadway, but he's saying something quite powerful, quite like subversive even about America. Likewise, the Gospel of Matthew, and especially Matthew's Christmas story, is Matthew creatively repurposing the Hebrew story of Moses and Israel, which would have been familiar to his original audience, to sneak in a big claim about Jesus and about what God is like, who God is like, what is God's character. For example, if you've ever read the Gospel of Matthew, it's very important to Matthew, uh, it's very important to his Christmas story that Jesus as a baby flees to Egypt to escape a murderous authoritarian ruler, Herod. And why is that so important to Matthew to tell the story, which that doesn't appear in Luke's story? It's because that means Jesus' movements mirror the story of Moses in the Exodus. Perhaps you're familiar. Moses was, had to flee an authoritarian ruler and was put into a basket to go down the river and then was discovered to escape being murdered. Or Matthew's birth narrative has five dreams or visions that guide Joseph and the wise men to keep the baby Jesus safe which correspond to the five books of Israel's Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, or the Old Testament today. The whole Gospel of Matthew can actually be divided into five parts that correspond with those same five parts of the Hebrew Torah. Jesus is the new Moses, is what Matthew is saying. Rome is the new Egypt, 
We sang the song today that I love, this, this kind of telling of the history of Israel, of when Pharaoh came for children and, 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 and what, what God did in response to that. And then we sang when Herod came for children, because that's the idea. So, so the Gospel of Matthew is actually doing that. It's trying to get people who knew the story of Pharaoh and Egypt and Moses and setting the people of Israel free. It's trying to get them to tie those together. Jesus is going to do the same thing. It's a subversive drama. We use familiar frames of reference to sneak in a big claim. And boy, do subversive dramas work, right? Like, Hamilton went gangbusters. Like, people just were, like, paying hundreds and hundreds of dollars to see that show. My goodness. When, when Miranda grounds the story that he wants to tell his American audience about being an immigrant, an outsider, and yet changing the world, when he grounds that in the context of the American Revolution, it pops, Right? Wow, I never thought about it that way. I don't give a crap about Aaron Burr, but now Aaron Burr is like Leslie Odom Jr. That's cool, right? <laughs> like, now we, it, it pops, the story pops. Likewise, when Matthew grounds his story that he wants to tell to his Jewish audience about the vision of Jesus, and he grounds that in the context of the Jews' history of being oppressed, and say, oh, yeah, Oppression, you, we, we want to talk about our oppression now, we're going to talk about our oppression then. Wow, his message pops, pops to the people he's trying to share that with. The evoking of a shared past helps a subversive drama feel important, and yet the subversive drama isn't actually about the past. It's not about illuminating something in history, it's about the future. It's about what's next. It's about what do we do now. And so Lin-Manuel Miranda, when he tells the story of Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr, his main purpose is not like, so we better understand what's happening, like what happened then, because like nobody's demanding it to, right? Like nobody's response to Hamilton is like, I'm just not sure Thomas Jefferson could rap that well. You know, no, nobody is thinking that when they watch Hamilton, right? They're like, what are you telling me about now? What are you telling me about the future? And it's the same way with the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is, is useful to his audience, not because he's illuminating something about the past, because it's inspiring them about what future are we joining in now? What are you doing now, God? And so what is this intriguing future that Matthew's subversive Christ, Christmas drama Herod versus Jesus is, is, uh, is asking us to join in on. That's this cosmic showdown of Herod versus Jesus. Herod is this, this, this puppet king put in by the Roman Caesar, as we talked about, right? The, the, the Roman peace. How are we going to keep things together? We're going to install this king who's going to hold those people together. And if anybody gets out of line, King Herod's going to send his army to stop it. Do you know uh, Herod's actual legal title was, like, as given by Caesar, was king of the Jews. That's, that's actually the legal title that was given to Herod. And then in Matthew's story, the wise men who come and show up on the scene are asking the question, where is the baby born king of the Jews? When we read that, we should see that's political. It's like, that's, that's his title. And they're asking Herod, where's king of the Jews? Well, what king of the Jews? Uh, right here, you're talking to him. So this is, this is like, this is charged stuff. And the next time that phrase, King of the Jews, appears in Matthew's gospel is over the head of Jesus on the cross when a sign is put above him that says King of the Jews. And it's meant by the soldiers in the story as mockery, but it's meant by the author Matthew as a subversive statement. Who is the real King of the Jews? Is it Herod or is it Jesus? And so 
even though this, the center of this story is about Jewish people, it's about king of the Jews, the implications are not just for Jews, according to Matthew. Like, this, this story is like cosmic. There's a, there's a magic star, for goodness sake, right? Like, guiding, the heavens are testifying to who the king is, right? Like, this is about, this is about cosmic things. And the invitation is to participate in a future that looks like a King Jesus rather than a King Herod, that where self-sacrifice is chosen rather than domination, where bottom-up influence is chosen rather than top-down control, where peace through justice is chosen rather than peace through violence. Again, translating to our time, today's broken economic program for supposed peace, where we have this just immense gap between the most wealthy in the world and everyone else. A, this, is, this is about choosing a solidarity economy that refuses to exploit people to pad the pockets of the rich rather than a top-down economy that requires exploitation to work. That's what this is about. Herod versus Jesus. And if you get those political and economic dimensions to the Christmas story, you're sort of primed to see them all over the Gospel of Matthew. So there's one part of the Matthew Christmas story that I want to actually read for us as we're talking about this. This is uh, this, from the story of the wise men, uh, or the Magi. This is after Matthew writes that King Herod was frightened to hear about another king of the Jews from the wise men, but before Herod escalates by giving the order that we sang about in that song, giving the order to kill all children two years or younger, okay? So right before that, we have this from the story. <clears throat> When the wise men had heard King Herod, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then, opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And here's the line I'm most interested with. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. I think the wise men are a model for us, especially in that last line. They returned home by another road. They refused Herod's call to cooperate with his schemes. What makes the wise men wise? They were discerning enough to pay attention to a dream that warned them that Herod wasn't trustworthy and had bad motives. That's what makes the wise men wise. And what if that is all of our stories? We can take that as sort of a model for every human being. Herod, or whatever broken program for peace, like the top-down economy, is calling to us all. It's calling to us, it's flattering us. Like, come into my company. Give me advice. Be a part of what I'm doing here. It's calling to all of us. This is what it means to be alive, is to have broken programs for peace to call to us. But also what it means to be alive is to every now and then have a dream, like the wise men. And that dream makes you wonder, wait a minute, is this program calling to me trustworthy? It makes you wonder, like, is, in, in our world, is money and profit and the market all there is? Is me retiring, you know, the way that I'm supposed to, according to this culture, all there is? 
is me protecting what I have all there is? Is all of the things that are supposedly wise all there is? Or do I feel called to higher values also? Do I sometimes have a dream that wakes me up and like, God, I just want to feel more alive. <laughs> I want my life to be about something bigger than just my bank account. And the power brokers and the gatekeepers of our economy, are, are they really as trustworthy as they claim to be? The invitation for us is to be wise by choosing to return home by another road, to refuse to cooperate with the Herods of our time. So that's, I, I'm, I'm moved by that image, that idea. Maybe that's all of us. Maybe we are all the Magi having a dream. Oh, man. Uh, what does it mean practically to, if, if, if I'm onto something here, what does it mean for us to, to practically go home by another road, refuse to cooperate with the Herods of our day, with the top-down economy, if we're open to that interpretation? So to, to be as practical as possible, each of my suggestions are in the spirit of using Matthew's Christmas story as this subversive drama that we tell and retell. So how, how does one use a subversive drama? We, we, we talked last week about how does one use a protest song. We get it stuck in our head, right, to steal us for action, to keep us going. The way we use a subversive drama is not so much like an earworm, it's more like a Trojan horse, right? It sneaks a revolutionary message of change into the most influential places possible, like Broadway, or company boardrooms, or school textbooks, right? Like, or the Disney Plus streaming platform, right? It's like, and before you know it, Mike Pence is in the audience with David Diggs rapping, immigrants, we get the job done, right? And then the crowd goes wild. And do you guys know this story that like the orchestra had to add an extra beat to that part because every time David Diggs would sing that, everybody would go wild and they like they couldn't hear the next line. So the orchestra had to add an extra line because immigrants we get the job done was so moving to the audiences that were hearing this. I love that. That's the spirit of my suggestions today. How do we tell and retell the story to shift the narrative? Okay, so first my suggestion is to tell the story to refocus on the real problem. Tell this subversive Christmas story to refocus on the real problem. I want to give us some quick American history. The last time there were sudden shifts in wealth disparity, where we saw that distance between rich and poor gap, like that graph I showed you, where it was like, what happened between 1995 and 2000, where suddenly it was so astronomical. The last time that happened was in the wake of the Industrial Revolution. So this is like the Rockefellers and the Carnegies, if you learned about this, late 1800s, early 1900s. And a big way the church responded to that was what's now known as the social gospel movement. That's right. In the late 1800s and early 1900s, fire and brimstone preachers were the ones organizing for labor unions and livable wages for all. Does that seem unfathomable? Fire and brimstone preachers were the ones organizing for livable wages for all and labor unions. Now, because of the religious right and white flight to the suburbs and the way America is culturally sorted so differently 100-plus uh, years later, that feels like what? Outside of the black Protestant church in America, fire and brimstone preachers are not at all talking about labor unions and livable wages, right? 
This, something has fundamentally changed since the last time we saw massive wealth disparity happen. What that's meant is, generally speaking, the moral voice that religion once had in America to fight for economic justice has been forfeited. The moral voice to fight for economic justice that religion once had has been forfeited. Religious people, religious leaders, pastors like me have been asleep on the job. You know what people, uh, when, when people think of economic justice today, do you know what they don't think of? Church. <laughs> right? What is the, what's the common image of church in like popular culture? It's like uh, pastors like using money for their own gains, right? People do not think of church when they think of economic justice. That is a shame. That is a damn shame. I'm serious. Like, when no one is talking about the spiritual stakes to economic injustice, the fight against it is hindered. We have one hand tied behind our back, and we don't need any hands tied behind our back if the CEO to worker salary ratio in America is 398 to 1. If I can return us again to the legacy of Dr. King, one current example of someone who I think is telling the story the way that I think we need to elevate, uh, I, wonder, I wonder if you would help me elevate this person. This is somebody who in recent years relaunched Dr. King's Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, and that is William Barber III. Anyone ever listened to or heard William Barber III before? A couple people. Was somebody in the back? Excellent. Yeah. William Barber is awesome. Um, I remember hearing him interviewed once, and, uh, and he was talking about what he calls the five interlocking injustices and evils, and their systemic racism, and systemic poverty, and ecological devastation, and the war economy, and militarism. And then his last one, I love this, his last one is the false moral religious narrative that God wants it this way. The false moral and religious narrative that God wants it the way it is. And I remember hearing him uh, interviewed, and, I, and he's like, he's super passionate, but he's also like really like ho hum, like, why doesn't everybody stand for what I stand for? And so they're talking to him, and he's like, people call this God's plan. That's not God's plan. That's a damn nonsense plan. And I'm like, yes, you go, William Barber. I just love that line. It's not God's plan. That's a nonsense plan. Uh, here's a quote from a 2018 interview with uh, William Barber. 43.5% uh, of this country is poor and low wealth. People are dying. We can't just have a left-right argument anymore. We need to have a deeply moral argument. What kind of democracy do we want to be? You cannot have a democracy continue to exist when 400 people make an average of $97,000 an hour and you lock people up who simply want $15 in the union. Mm. Preach, right? Yeah. I think Barber and the Poor People's Campaign have it right. Not because they're nonpartisan, but because the whole partisan versus nonpartisan is missing the point. We are distracted from the real problem, top-down economic injustice, which organizes part of the working class versus another part of the working class, and they think each other are the enemy. Mostly, this is done by stoking white grievances. So it feels to white working class that, they're white, uh, that the white rich are their allies rather than other working class people who are not white. All the while, wealthy power brokers and gatekeepers continue to be served, and the poor continue to be exploited. How we need to tell and retell Matthew's subversive drama to refocus on the real problem. Herod is the real problem.
top-down rule and power is the real problem, not each other. There's a, a theological distinction that we could make here, which is interesting. A distinction between soul-saving theology and liberation theology. If you've been with Brownline Church, maybe you've heard us use these phrases before. Soul-saving theologies are about saving unbelievers with belief. Okay? Here's somebody who doesn't believe. We're going to save them by giving them belief. On the other hand, liberation theologies are about saving dehumanized people with personhood. You get that difference? We're going to find unbelievers and we're going to save them with belief is one approach. But a liberation theology is saying, we're going to find people who are dehumanized and we're going to show them that they are human beings. We're going to give them personhood. That's what this read of Matthew's Christmas story drives us toward, a liberation theology, offering personhood in a world that dehumanizes people, especially an economy that dehumanizes people. What if that's what it means to be saved to be given personhood in a cruel, unforgiving, transaction-obsessed world where all I am is just another line on a chart of accounts, but I can be given personhood by God. That is being saved. The first time I heard that distinction, I was like, yes, like, that is what moves me. That is why I'm in the religion game, because life is dehumanizing and I want to offer personhood. So, let's keep telling and retelling the story to keep the focus on the real problem, top-down power. My second suggestion for us, why to tell and retell this Matthew subversive Christmas story, is to shape your desires. Tell the story to shape your desires. <clears throat> this is a more personal thing. So, I'm like, I'm, I'm talking about the economy. I'm talking about America. I want to talk about just our own hearts. Uh, sociologists often talk about religion as a thing that is desire-shaping. Fundamentally, it's what does religion do for us? It shapes our desires. From this view, no one is not religious. Like, you may be traditionally religious. Your desires are shaped by Christianity or uh, Islam or being Hindu or fill-in-the-blank. Uh, or, or you could be non-traditionally shaped by something else. Your desires are shaped by something else. But because your desires are being shaped, whether you like it or not, everybody is religious is in this approach. In this, I, honestly, from this point of view, the gospel uh, of the marketplace is like the biggest religion in the world, right? The global marketplace is constantly shaping our desires, right? I think uh, the last stat I saw is the average person uh, sees, in 2021, sees between 4,000 and 10,000 ads a day. That's shaping your desires, right? We're seeing between 4,000 and 10,000 advertisements a day. Uh, last week, I talked about kitchen envy. Boy, my desires are being shaped by that, aren't they? So what do I recommend? To tell and to retell Matthew's subversive drama about returning home by another road, refusing to cooperate with Herod, to let that shape our desires, to stir in us a desire for justice, a desire to offer personhood to people who otherwise would be dehumanized, a desire for a better picture of God that isn't a nonsense plan, 
but a beautiful picture of God, an always present God who is with all of those who are downtrodden and on the underside of this top-down economy, who is with the working class and not with the rich. I remember recently like having this moment while I was waiting in line in a store and I felt out of nowhere just this like swell of compassion for the store employee. I didn't even know this person. Has anybody ever had an experience like that where you just randomly look at somebody in like the day in, day out of capitalist life and you just randomly like feel like, oh, man, they look like they're, they're working really hard and they're tired. And I just like had this moment of like wanting to be friendly, wanting to make this guy's day in a small way, to leave him feeling seen as a human being. That's what we're talking about. That's shaping our desires by this story. Because there is no neutrality in desire shaping. If we don't have a story of our intentional choosing, like the Matthew Christmas story, shaping our desires, then the market will fill that void because there's about 10,000 advertisements waiting for you after you leave the Davis Theater. In fact, before we leave the Davis Theater, there will be some of those advertisements waiting for us, right? Here's one right there, right? I, I gave you one, right? Like, I mean... They're everywhere. We have to have a story of our own intentional choosing to shape our desires, because otherwise it's gonna get filled up with, you know, stay on the hamster wheel, keep this thing turning. That's why we need Matthew's Christmas story. All right, I wanna pray for us. I feel deeply like um, we, none of us, if, 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 if what I'm suggesting today of like, choosing to go home by another road like the wise men is what's laid out for us. This is not going to be easy for any of us. Our lives are enmeshed in all the things that are controlled by the wealthiest 1%. We cannot escape it. We cannot like opt out of it. But how can we do this in the midst of that? That requires, I think, regularly stepping back, praying, hearing from God, slowing down, trying to figure out, God, what do I do now? What do I do now? Because there is no glossary that's going to answer that question for me magically. We have to slow down. We have to cultivate an experience of prayer, of listening to this Jesus and not just going with the status quo that's right in front of us. And so I would love for us to pray right now to kind of, you know, make that and make this an experience where that can happen right now. What I want to encourage you, if there's anything like is stirring in you as we are singing this morning, as I'm sharing this morning, um, if, so, if something's going on and like, like you can even feel it physically, like just a little like, you know, like shot up your, like a little, it almost feels like heartburn, you know, if, it, if you're having an experience like that, I would encourage you today, today is one of those days where I just want to say, don't leave um, don't leave the theater without being prayed for in person. That is something that our church has a really good track record of doing in a non-weird way of just like, sometimes it's just impossible to experience God on our own. We need somebody to come alongside us because no person is an island, right? And just having somebody sit next to you and express in their words the prayer of your heart can really help with that. So uh, from time to time, I'll, I'll do this. Uh, if, you're, if you're someone who I've talked with before and you are comfortable praying uh, like in person for somebody else, and you'd be willing to do that today. Can I ask you to raise your hand just for a moment so we know who you are? Yep, there's a couple of people. Great. Everybody kind of look around. Yep, there's, there's a couple of people here that are be willing to do that with you. And so if that is you and you have something going on, grab one of those folks or grab me after the service. Um, again, it does not have to be a strange thing at all. It is just a matter of, this is hard work. 
and it is not something that we're going to be able to pull off for ourselves. And asking somebody to come alongside us in prayer can really move things on that. All right, let me pray in this moment. God, we look to where the star that guided the wise men is in our world today now. We look for that star. When we close our eyes, when we go to sleep, we look for the sort of dreams that you inspired in the wise men. What made them wise is that they questioned they questioned whether the most powerful authority in the land really had their interest in mind. And that requires something of us, God. It requires courage if we are going to do the same in our world. It requires um, vigilance even. Like, I mean, if we're seeing 10,000 ads a day, and we're trying to shape our desires by things other than those advertisements. I mean, that, is, that, that requires vigilance. How on earth do we do this, God? May each of us now in this space know that we are not alone in this, that this is not up to our moral fortitude to pull off, but that we are part of a larger tapestry that cares deeply that exploitation end, that cares deeply that people have meaning in their everyday and don't just feel like they're running around in a hamster wheel. We are part of a larger tapestry of people who are asking the same questions we are of how on earth do I do this in the soul-killing, death-by-paper-cuts, day-in, day-out of my American job. <laughs> we are not the only ones asking that question. Stir us up by, 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 by showing us that we are not the only ones asking that question, God. We are not alone, and we can find small ways to refuse to cooperate with the Herods of our day, and we can find inspiration to be a part of larger movements that are required to change the reality of a top-down rule in our world that exploits people and that exploits the planet. Help keep our eyes open. Help keep our, 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 our minds ready for those dreams that will interrupt our sleep and show us a star to follow. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.